Welcome to episode 69 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you out there for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and Justice Department, and now in Steptoe's New York, New York office. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Jason Brown, who's the assistant to the special agent in charge of the Secret Services Criminal Investigative Division. Also, Jason Weinstein, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions and is now doing white-collar uh, criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. And finally, Maury Schenk, former, former managing partner of our London office and now advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, as well as a private equity investor and director of technology companies. Let's get started with the big news today, the mess over the reauthorization of Section 215 and other Patriot Act provisions. I think Stewart uh, is not here today because he really didn't want to hear anyone say, I told you so, but we did tell him so. <laughs> Looks like Senator McConnell's gambit to uh, try to force an extension of the bulk telephony metadata program didn't quite work out. And so we've had a lapse in authority today, uh, not just of the bulk telephony uh, program in Section 215, but also of the lone wolf provisions. Uh, and the roving wiretap provisions, which at least the roving wiretap, uh, many in government, I think, would say uh, is more important. And, and with 215, of course, not only do we lose the bulk uh, telephony metadata program, which uh, perhaps reasonable minds can differ over whether that was uh, really all that helpful or not, but the 215 authority just to get other sorts of business records also lapses, which I think is, uh, uh, many in government would say that is that is a real Loss. And so now we find ourselves where uh, we could have been a week or more ago or several weeks ago, and that is having the Senate uh, take up consideration of the uh, USA Freedom Act, which is the, the House's amendments uh, to the Patriot Act to try to scale back uh, some of the authority and put in place some civil liberties protections, such as uh, a uh, civil liberties advocate in the FISA court who would be able to uh, put forward the privacy interests when it comes to uh, surveillance requests. Do you guys have any, anything, uh, any thoughts about um, how we ended up here or, or where we may be heading now over the next couple of days? No, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that this um, game of chicken between Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul doesn't end up with s some legislation being passed because as committed as McConnell is to having some version of the 215 program, a version of 215 to him will be better than no 215. Um, I just, as much as as cynical as I am about um, Congress, even even for me, this is remarkable to see uh, this get as as far as it's gotten. Well, the thing that's really striking in the coverage in the last 24 hours or so has been how personal it's gotten on the Republican side. Um, I mean, really pretty vicious stuff being said, vicious for senators at least. Uh, and then it, it got quite comical as well when. Um, uh, Senator McConnell was basically giving a dressing down on the floor of the Senate to uh, to Rand Paul. Uh, Senator Pat Roberts' cell phone starts going off, and his ringtone is the the theme from Frozen. <laughs> this is the this is the uh, world's most august uh, debating society, and this is this is what it's um, come down to. Well, it does it does seem like we'll we'll have more uh, to report next week. Hopefully, some some concrete. Achievements rather than just more more of a mess. 
but that's where we find ourselves as of uh, the time of our recording. In other news, there's an interesting decision out of the Sixth Circuit uh, uh, whose primary uh, import, I think, is that it shows the continuing effect of the Supreme Court's Riley decision on, on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence generally. Uh, Riley, of course, involved the search incident to arrest doctrine, the, the exception to the warrant requirement for searches incident to an arrest. But the Sixth Circuit case involved uh, a different doctrine, which is known as the private search doctrine, which says that if uh, I, as a private person, you know, search your uh, computer, Jason, and, and find some interesting stuff and then tell the, the police about it, if the police come and just look at exactly the same thing that I looked at, they don't need a warrant because I've already intruded into your, your privacy, and so you've lost any reasonable expectation of, of uh, privacy. Well, in this case, uh, when uh, a man named uh, Aaron Lichtenberger was arrested for failing to register as a sex offender, his girlfriend hacked into his computer and discovered images of child pornography. She then called the police who arrested Lichtenberger and then requested that um, uh, that the girlfriend reopen the laptop and show the, the, the police officer the files. She did, and the officer then got a warrant to search contents more thoroughly, leading to an indictment on child pornography charges. Lichtenberger then said, hey, wait a second, you, uh, you know, you needed a warrant to, to look at the computer in the first place, and the, the government said no, because this is protected by the private search doctrine, since the girlfriend had already looked at it. The Sixth Circuit said, well, you know, when it comes to electronic devices, since they have so much information, we're going to apply this doctrine with extra rigor, um, and it's got to be absolutely certain or, or virtually certain that the uh, police search did not exceed the scope of the prior search. And since the, the facts here are somewhat in question about exactly how far the second search went, um, uh, we're going to hold that the, the doctrine doesn't, doesn't apply here. Interesting, uh, interesting application of, of the basic um, uh, uh, premise of Riley, which is that we got to we basically got to apply Fourth Amendment doctrines a little bit differently, a little bit more rigorously when it comes to uh, electronic information. You know, one of the ironies, Mike, is that you're more likely to have a problem like they had here. The more child porn or other contraband there is on the computer, because it's going to be harder for the private citizen to keep track of what it is he or she saw, and and for the the law enforcement officer to be able to say with virtual certainty that they only looked at the stuff that the private citizen saw. I mean, there was apparently so much child porn on this computer that neither of them could keep straight uh, exactly what it is they saw because they were just bombarded with images. Um, but I think you're totally right. This is, um, as we've talked about a lot of times, Riley's going to have implications beyond search incidents arrest and, and the, the language in Riley about how digital devices are different from other kind of devices I think are going to affect um, – uh, not just cell phone searches, but laptop searches, email accounts, um, and, and other kind of uh, electronic media. And that's something we'll talk to Jason about later in the show as well. Yeah, it's getting, the Supreme Court's definitely going to have to get involved, I think, with more frequency than it would like, since uh, courts of appeals, or some of them at least, are, are pushing Riley, uh, or an interpretation of Riley, probably far beyond what the Supreme Court would have would have done. 
Although the Supreme Court kind of asked for it because they, uh, there's a lot of red meat language in there that suggests um, that they view this as a problem that goes beyond or an issue that goes beyond cell phones. So, you know, they're, they're sort of reaping what they sowed. Speaking of uh, reaping uh, what they sowed, uh, the criminal division is thinking about new guidance on, um, on hacking back or other sorts of countermeasures. What's that about? So this is uh, this is further evidence that hackback has gone mainstream. Uh, it's got to be a victory of sorts for Stort, who's been you know started out as the Don Quixote of hackback, um, and uh, th- that the head of the criminal division is talking about it. Um, the downside is Stort won't like what she had to say about it, but at least she's talking about it. So uh, if he takes a glass half full approach, uh, there it is. Um, Leslie Caldwell, the head of the criminal division, said in some remarks at a conference at Georgetown Law School a week or so ago, that the cybersecurity unit, in uh, which is part of the Computer Crime and IP section, or CSIPS, is considering issuing guidance on purely defensive uh, and effective countermeasures for companies that have been hacked or worried about being hacked, and providing some legal guidance on, on what the parameters are of measures that they can take. But she was explicit in saying that it's the criminal division's view, uh, both as a legal and policy matter, that uh, companies should not attempt to hack back. And as she said, and as I think you and I have both tried to convince Stuart unsuccessfully on multiple occasions um, that uh, the language of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act makes it prohibited, that it's not just DOJ's interpretation of it, but the, the, the way the statute is written. But she said even if it was legal, and this is in fairness to Stuart, who also believes that there, there are policy motivations to the interpretation, she said even if it was legal, there are a number of policy reasons why hackback is not good policy, the potential interference with ongoing criminal or national security investigations, the risk of harm to innocent third parties, uh, the possibility of violating the laws of another sovereign or causing an international incident, and, in her view, a low likelihood of success. Um, I don't think it's quite that simple, and I think that there are uh, enough companies that are getting uh, frustrated enough about the, the, the range of options available to them that this is going to continue to be a topic, but it is to the criminal division's credit that they at least want to make sure the companies are fully educated about what measures they actually can take legally um, so that they don't feel like their hands are completely tied. Um, Incidentally, um, the FTC uh, issued a statement uh, publicly recently in which they said they would look favorably on companies that cooperate with law enforcement uh, when they decide what, if any, enforcement action to take. And that was apparently, according to Leslie Caldwell, the result of an effort by DOJ to work with the FTC to try to create an environment in which companies would be more encouraged uh, to, to cooperate. And then in just to sort of complete the trio of uh, main justice-related news, uh, the, the FBI Cyber Division Assistant Director said last week that the FBI post-Sony is increasingly treating breach victims like crime victims, which is, of course, what they have been all along, uh, like deploying vi- victim witness coordinators and teams to provide uh, counseling and other assistance to employees. And he described Sony as a watershed moment where, the, where you know, the FBI Cyber Division decided that that they should uh, not differentiate between bank robbery victims and hacking victims. Uh, I think that's admirable, but the real issue uh, is not how the FBI or other law enforcement treat victims. I think most companies that have engaged with law enforcement would uh, agree that law enforcement gets that they're victims. It's it's not law enforcement at all. It's the FTC, uh, it's HHS, it's other regulators, and, and ultimately the courts in class action cases that, that continue to fuel this notion that that victims should actually be breached, uh, should be blamed for the breach. Yeah, well, you know, that, that leads to an interesting question because I've read several articles recently uh, where some lawyers in the defense bar at least are saying you know, privacy class actions are, are on the wane and, and they're likely to uh, peter out even more because 
plaintiffs' lawyers have had a difficult time convincing courts that there's any uh, that there's any harm there, or even of getting standing in, in federal court. Uh, but that's not something that's not something Yahoo right now is is probably experiencing, given uh, uh, given the results in a recent case out in California. Do you follow that one? Yeah, I did. In fact, it, it seemed like it was deja vu because. I know you've written and we've talked on the show before about the Google class action case in which um, a class of Gmail or a purported class of Gmail users and non-users uh, complained that Google's email scanning uh, practices uh, were a violation of the federal and state wiretap laws because people who were non-Gmail users who corresponded with Gmail account holders did not have an opportunity to opt out of Google's email scanning and and Lucy Coe, who you know, ought to be a, is a virtual guest commentator every week because we seem to talk about her every week. Um, as I recall, denied class certification in the Google case, but in Yahoo case that seems really reminiscent of the Google case, um, she cleared the way for the class to be uh, certified uh, in an order last week. And the allegation is very similar to the Google allegation that that uh, Yahoo scans emails, and that uh, non-Yahoo customers who either receive emails from Yahoo account holders or, or send emails to them uh, uh, have no opportunity to opt out of the scanning. Yahoo says the scanning is automated, that it's for the purpose of delivering targeted ads and for protecting uh, the network by detecting viruses and malware. And, uh, and Judge Coe said that U.S. residents who are non-Yahoo customers and who send or receive emails to or from Yahoo customers can be certified as a class. So what's the, what's the difference, do you think, in, in, in her mind? It's hard for me to... There's a real underlying difference that, that is motivated her to come out this way. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I, as I understand it, the, the stated reason that, it, that the Google class wasn't certified was, as I recall, uh, that it was difficult to determine who did or didn't consent. Um, you know, it seems that if you're a non-user, you know, that may be difficult for the users, but for a class of non-users, and the Yahoo case seems to be confined to non-users, um, it, it shouldn't be difficult at all to figure out if they consented or not. Right, because they're they're not signing on to anything unless you have some implicit theory of uh, consent that you know any any user knows that someone on the other end is going to be recording or scanning or monitoring. And unless every time you every time you try to send an email to somebody who has a Yahoo account, there's a banner that pops up that says your email is being scanned. I mean. Um, uh, which could be which could be a, a potential consequence of this, but I think I, I find it hard to believe candidly that anybody who who corresponds with someone who has a webmail account, whether it's Google, Yahoo, or someone else, doesn't know at this point in the history of the internet that the emails are being scanned. Yeah, well, it, 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 at this point, you know, we're so deeply involved in this issue. I don't know. I don't know that we can really <laughs> surmise what you know what some 18-year-old kid or 15-year-old kid or 34-year-old person who doesn't practice in this area assumes or knows about what goes on in the backbone or the or the service providers. Well, we'll have to see how that plays out. Well, you get the honor of uh, having our prurient interest uh, feature of the week, and, and this this week is not a Max Mosley item. No, I, I don't know how we got to a place where I end up doing all the prurient interest stuff. I don't, uh, but. Uh, keeping with the, the trend, um, there's a, a, a site called Adult Fred Finder, which I should say in all candor I've never been on, but my sense from what I've read about it is that it's not really focused on finding you friends in the substantive uh, sense. 
um, but finding you some kind of companionship. And, and a database of users of the site um, is for sale on the web now for, by a hacker who is offering it for uh, the equivalent of about $17,000 in Bitcoins. And at the same time, being an enterprising hacker is also offering his services to hack into other websites for about $170,000 in Bitcoins. The database reportedly has millions, almost 4 million emails and other personal information of users. Um, the operators of the site say that no passwords or financial information has been taken, but there is apparently some question about whether uh, the hacker got credit card information. And with you know, hackers being increasingly able to monetize large caches of data like that, I think the users of that site can get ready for a lot of spam, a lot of spear phishing, and maybe even some blackmail um, uh, emails to the extent that people got uh, personal information on people who don't want their affiliation with the site to be publicly known. Well, you know, anecdotally, it seems like we're getting a lot of these ransom demands uh, now um, being made in, in terms of Bitcoin rather than dollars or some other currency. Is that is that a real phenomenon, or is that just something you know that the press is is making a big deal of? I don't know. Maybe Jason Brown has a sense of this from from your Secret Service. Well, I think any um, any type of virtual currency that a criminal can use, where they're not trying to actually obtain currency in a more trackable form via Western Union drop or something of that nature, anything with a cryptocurrency or a virtual currency that they can monetize and move around in unregulated space is always going to be their desired mode of getting payment. In fact, you know, Michael and I handled a breach uh, a couple of months ago in, in which the, the, the hacker uh, uh, wanted to be paid in uh, a ransom, the equivalent of a ransom in, in Bitcoins. I said at an event I was at last week that was focused on, on Bitcoin and the blockchain that I thought that um, cert- even now, but certainly as law enforcement um, develops uh, better and better analytical tools and better capacity to track uh, movement of Bitcoins on the blockchain that any any hacker or other criminal who seeks to be paid in Bitcoins is a moron because the ability to track them is going to only increase. And uh, and there are other, uh, if you're smart about it, there are other ways to, to get and, and move money uh, that are less trackable. Well, that's, it's, uh, I guess uh, developments in New York are, are really just sort of to underscore that your point, because um, you know, Bitcoin is is really about to become just a highly another highly regulated uh, currency or um, uh, financial transaction. If, if uh, Ben Losky and others have their way, yeah. So Ben Losky, who was in AUSA uh, when I was in the Southern District, and when Jason was uh, a Secret Service agent in the Southern District, um, is uh, is about to I think this week announce or issue the the final version of what is being called the bit license regulations, which are uh, a regulatory scheme to specifically license Bitcoin-related businesses. And it's the product of a very long and engaged notice and comment process. I think the first draft came out in in the summer of last year, and the notice, the deadline for comments was extended at least once, and and there was a second draft that came out with other comments from all all over the Bitcoin community, but all over the world as well. What, what sort of is a, uh, kind of makes the circumstances interesting is that the same time that, that Ben announced that the final regs were coming out this week, he announced that he was leaving as, that he was leaving at the end of this month to open a consulting firm that, among other things, will advise companies on how to handle uh, Bitcoin regulations. So the timing of that was kind of interesting. 
Um, to his credit and to the New York uh, Department of Financial Services credit, they do appear to have taken to heart and incorporated many of the comments they received during the process. Um, what it remains to be seen, though, is how the final version of the regs will impact startups, especially software developers. Lasky has said that there will be an exemption for software uh, developers, um, but uh, there are uh, a number of reasons to have anxiety about that and, and about whether startups will be uh, disproportionately impacted by what will uh, almost certainly be a very expensive uh, compliance regime. Um, there's also uh, questions that we have to have answered about whether the AML provisions are going to apply to all Bitcoin wallet companies or only those where the company actually has custody over the, the consumer's accounts. Um, uh, Lasky said that his department is committed to providing examples and more examples and more examples until there is sufficient clarity so people understand how the regs apply to them. Um, and, and I think there's also anxiety about a requirement that people are expecting that New York DFS approve software updates, which in a business like this in which software gets updated all the time, it seems like it has the potential to be very onerous if it's applied uh, too broadly. Um, you know, and, and I think both startups and more established Bitcoin companies are, are really looking to see how this set of regulations will impact the ability of, of new companies to enter the marketplace. The, these regs could be uh, uh, a significant barrier to entry, and, and there's anxiety also because uh, depending on how other states uh, operate, you know, these, these regs, these bit license regs could end up being a template for other states that are considering regulating this space as well. So a lot of uh, anticipation and anxiety about what the final version of the bit license proposal is going to look like. And the good news, though, for you if, if, uh, uh, is that there will be a new consulting firm out there by the end of June in which somebody who knows a little bit about the regs can help you navigate them. Um, and uh, I say that with a certain degree of sarcasm, but it is what it is. Lasky and Associates. Does he actually have a name, do you know? Um, I don't know, but I'm guessing Lasky is in the name. Yeah, it's probably in the name. All right, well, let's finish up the news roundup with uh, some significant developments in, in Europe. Um, uh, legislation as well as some uh, some court action. Maury, what should we know about? Well, first of all, the, the EU uh, legislative process is almost as dysfunctional as the U.S. process. Everybody seems uh, transfixed by Grexit, which is the possibility that Greece will default and leave the euro, and Brexit, which is the possibility that Britain will leave the EU entirely if it doesn't reform as David Cameron wants. And this is manifest in delay of some, some of the key legislation in the infosec area. And the two big pieces of legislation that have been delayed are the new data protection regulation and the Network and Information Security Directive. And there were news items this week in both of those areas. The Dutch um, Parliament has introduced legislation on data breach, which is something that would, would be covered by the data protection regulation. And I, got the, I guess they got impatient. Um, and the Network and Information Security Directive seems to have been hijacked by a few member states who want broad uh, cybersecurity regulation of companies again, apparently targeting um, U.S.-based multinationals. So I see this as a lot of noise, but it's just sim sim uh, symptomatic of the delay and mess around this EU legislation. Do you think other countries will follow the Dutch lead now and, and start passing their own data breach notification requirements with, with attendant penalties the way the Dutch have? I think it's 
quite possible. You know, the U.S. took the lead in this area, and then the EU got the idea. They put in uh, obligations on electronic communications carriers, and they would. The proposal is to extend that to a lot more companies. Uh, and I think a lot of member states are now interested in that and will do it on their own. And you know, another item this week is Skype facing the possibility of complying with uh, lawful intercept process in Belgium. And that's also emblem. That's another area where you have a patchwork of law across the EU. So I think um, we're, we're going to see the same thing in data breach as well. Yeah, it, 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 it would be ironic uh, if you know in the U.S. where we've got 47 states and four territories with their own data breach laws and no federal uh, notification requirement. If, if somehow the EU starts going down that same fragmented path rather than having one uh, united um, uh, approach uh, because of this holdup in the data protection regulation. I think it's a real risk and the fact that, you know, if one um, if one country starts to do it, that just prompts others to start to do similar things. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and Microsoft, um, I've read that, that Microsoft might have not towed the party line recently when it comes to encryption on, on devices or in, in software. Yeah, well, David Kemp, yeah, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. So, have you followed that? Yeah, you know, the, the U.K. government um, appears to have told lots of senior officials to speak out against the broad use of encryption by Internet companies like Apple and Google. And that seems to be a directive that's coming from David Cameron and the and the conservative leadership, uh, which is now, I think, cemented by uh, the recent conservative election victory. Microsoft has said, well, they might go along with it. And I, my guess is that that's about keeping U.K. government contracts. Microsoft is, you know, increasingly an, an enterprise company, and uh, they've probably voted with their purse on that. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see if there, if there is more uh, uh, division in, in what we're hearing from private companies as opposed to that constant drumbeat of, you know, don't tell us what we can do in terms of security on our devices or in our systems. Uh, we, and, yeah, you know, Apple and um, Google have offered it, I think, as a consumer feature in response to concerns that people have in the wake of the Snowden revelations to be, you know, people of greater protection for their information. And I think we could see a division between big consumer companies and more enterprise-oriented companies. Right, right. Well, that, that's certainly music to stewards here, so we'll, we'll have to ask him next week what he thinks about uh, that development. Well, thanks for that, Maury. And, and uh, let's move now to our uh, interview with uh, Jason Brown, uh, which uh, Jason Wines is going to lead, but I'll, I'll chime in occasionally. Okay, so uh, thank you uh, again to Jason Brown for being here. Uh, Jason was, uh, full disclosure, the case agent on my very first trial as an AUSA 16, 17 years ago. Uh, we've been good friends uh, ever since that time, despite the fact that he had to put up with me uh, uh, as I was uh, learning what I was doing and didn't know what I was doing. Um, so he's a really good human being and uh, and a great public servant. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Jason. Um, so, Jason, one of the things that, that I found to be consistently true since – all the way back to when we started working together, is that uh, most people assume that cybercrime is just the FBI's turf and don't have a good sense. They think of Secret Service as a protective agency and FBI as an investigative one and probably don't have a good sense of what the Electronic Crimes 
task force program is and just how far back and it goes and how broadly it reaches. So why don't you take a, a moment and, and educate the listeners about the Secret Service role in cybercrime and cyberspace? Absolutely. Um, in the mid to early 1990s, you know, everything we were seeing in crime always was going to have a nexus with electronics. Uh, back whenever I started in the agency in 99, everything was about cell phones, cloned cell phones. About every case you ran into had something to do with a cloned cell phone in it. Um, computers were becoming more and more prevalent in day-to-day work. Uh, everything was getting miniaturized, more portable. The Secret Service understood that they couldn't do this by themselves. We understood that we needed to have a partnership between law enforcement, the public, and academia to go after the problems we see in electronic crimes. So the New York Field Office started the first Electronic Crimes Task Force just for that purpose, to bring law enforcement, uh, public-private partnerships, and academia together to address what we're seeing as emerging crimes uh, in in electronic area. But one thing that we wanted to do, we didn't want to make academia and private industry act more like law enforcement. We wanted to teach law enforcement to act more like a corporation and understand how uh, business works. So that's why the whole premise of an ECTF is to structure it more like a business. The ECTFs that we have out there right now, we have 38. We're about to bring one more domestic on board. 36 right now are domestic sites with two internationally in Rome and London. And the whole purpose is to answer back to our shareholders. And our shareholders are those partners we have in uh, public and private companies as well as academia in what we're seeing in the emerging trends of cybercrime. And with the re- everybody's resources, of course, limited, uh, whether it's yours or, or the FBI's, how do you decide what are the areas that Secret Service will investigate and, and, and uh, which uh, are there certain areas that the FBI will investigate or is it just sort of case by case? Um, I think more than anything, it lies in where we come from. Um, the Secret Service, we were formed in 1865 to counter the proliferation of counterfeit U.S. currency after the Civil War. Uh, not very many people know that we didn't even start doing protection until 1912 after the assassination of President McKinley. So where we come from, Prior to the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, we were the Treasury Department. That's where we came from. So the Secret Service always has our emphasis in our investigations on protecting the financial services sector as well as the retail sector. And our authorities come that you can look back through our authorities over time, and a lot of people say, okay, well, who should be doing this investigation? Should it be doing uh, Secret Service? Should it be the FBI? Well, if you look at 1029, access device fraud, which is where we got all of our credit card authorizations, or 1030, computer crime, what do you see in those two uh, statutes? Both the United States Secret Service and the FBI with both having jurisdiction in that area. Well, you know, that's that's true of you know sort of physical world crimes, too, you know, that don't involve electronics, and, and people often think, well, you know, should the FBI be investigating drug enforcement or just the DEA or should the FBI be doing violent crime or just the ATF? And the reality is you need everybody uh, working on it, and there's enough of that crime, unfortunately, for everybody to, to investigate it. Absolutely. So uh, you mentioned the retail sector as being an area that, and, and financial services being an area where you all uh, place a particular degree of emphasis. Have you found over the course of the 16, 17 years you've been doing this, um, has how has the willingness of companies to come forward and engage with law enforcement changed? Has it been for the better or for the worse? I think it's definitely been for the better. Um, there's a lot of things that we've seen. In the past, we've seen a lot of victim notification to law enforcement they have a problem. But let's be honest with uh, the expanse of the Internet and how these complex network intrusions are detected, uh, found through law enforcement action or through third-party forensics, things of that nature. It's a lot more law enforcement going to private industry 
industry saying, hey, we have reason to believe through our investigation that you have a problem. So this is the information we have that in indicates you may have a network intrusion to your system. Take a look at it. We're here to assist. We'd like to assist, but if you don't want us around, just tell us and we'll leave. More often than not, it's the former that happens. They want us in there. They want us to assist, to assist them with their, with their problems. Do you think that that is uh, in part influenced by Target and Sony and some of the real high-profile breaches, or was was that trend apparent even before then? I think it was apparent even before then, but I think it became even more important to not necessarily the large corporations as it did the smaller corporations. Uh, when the Staples, uh, excuse me, not Staples, when Target came along, we had the problem with that one. Uh, Target. Set, help set up the re retail services ISAC, essentially the, the equivalent of the financial services ISAC, and they saw the importance in that. Uh, one thing that we can now take to, which is one of our goals, to small and medium-sized businesses is saying, hey, the, the big guys, they're getting their stuff together. They're getting things in line. We need to get this awareness down to some of the smaller corporations so they understand that they may need to look at, at their systems before they have a problem. Uh, you know, I was thinking last night about uh, the Albert Gonzalez case that you worked on uh, before you were a bigwig uh, <laughs> headquarters official. And and uh, I, my recollection is at the sentencing of Gonzalez, who got 20 years for hacking, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, got hacked, uh, doing two hacks, two big hacks, both the, the Heartland Payment Systems hack and the, the uh, TJX hack. Uh, my recollection is that one of the retailers, uh, even as of the date of sentencing, was trying to avoid being publicly identified as a victim of the breach. Absolutely. And it seems certainly post-Target and, and post-Sony, and as attention has been paid to some very high-profile institutions, governmental and uh, private sector, that have been uh, hacking victims, that there's no longer any kind of a stigma associated with that. Well, I think the biggest problem, well, not the biggest problem, the biggest issue these companies want is their market share. The last thing they want to do is be the, the next embarrassment out there in the sector. Um, that's not for us in law enforcement to decide when or if that happens. Um, or the way we look at it is we keep our mouth shut. We work side by side with these corporations. And if and when the regulators or legal or public affairs decides they need to go public for it, or if there's a notification requirement depending on that state, they adhere to that at that time. It's not for us in law enforcement to dictate that. So one of the things that Michael and I find is that um, companies are, in addition to worrying about market share, of course, and the potential reputational harm that comes from from uh, uh, telling the public about a breach is that they're also worried about um, potential consequences of engaging with law enforcement, that they could lose control of their information, that, you know, once the FBI or the Secret Service is in, you know, they, in theory, could be in for all purposes. Uh, they worry that engaging with you and providing information to you uh, could end up uh, being used, that information could be used against them in a future civil proceeding or regulatory proceeding. Um, have you encountered that in, in the course of your dealings with companies, and, and what are some of the ways that the Secret Service tries to address those concerns? Um, the biggest thing is, you know, we don't enter into NDAs and things of that nature. But uh, one thing is once we we go down that path, as you well know, in criminal investigation, we get a grand jury involved and things of that nature. A lot of the information we have is protected under the grand jury. Addition to that, when it's an open investigation, the Secret Service widely considers that not foyable. That's not uh, part of a freedom of information request because it is part of an ongoing uh, investigation. What we want to do is to maintain the utmost of candor, um, keep that information between us and the victim company, and work through that together. It does us no good to go out and run in our mouths in public in the middle of an investigation about what a company has endured while we were looking at something. 
uh, is there advice that you would give to companies of whether they're large companies or small or medium-sized companies that are are worried that uh, are just generally reluctant about letting law enforcement in the door and letting law enforcement in, in their systems? I think the biggest thing that any company needs to think about is think about what they're going to do about a problem before they have a problem. Uh, preparing. The biggest thing that we push forth in Electronic Crimes Task Force Network is relationships. Establish those relationships with law enforcement ahead of time. That way, whenever you're having a problem in the New York and Manhattan area, you're not calling the New York field office and asking for the duty agent. You're calling the New York field office and you're asking for the supervisor of the Electronic Crimes Task Force, who is a personal friend of yours, and you have a working relationship with them ahead of time. That way you have that comfort before anything ever happens. That's the whole point of the ECTFs, is to give that comfort, to share information, to share what we're seeing out there so we can better protect the networks. But even on the outside, you need to take a look at what's going on in the inside. You need to engage from just the IT guy on the ground floor all the way up to the C-suite, to your legal department, to your public affairs department, to uh, a possible third-party uh, forensics firm on the outside, um, maybe another legal firm on the outside, whatever it may be. All those relationships need to be talked about and discussed ahead of time so nobody's surprised when something does happen on how everybody's going to react. Even down to the point of having tabletop exercises within your company is a good idea. That's one of the things that, that Michael and I have been preaching to companies as well. We started to do tabletop exercises this year for companies, and it's, it's uh, surprising how even companies that are run by very sophisticated people um, have and, and that may even have a plan of some kind – um, have not tested it, and so don't really uh, realize how it'll work. Mike likes to say that no plan survives contact with the enemy, and you know it's better to find out that your plan doesn't work or needs to be tweaked when it's a simulated crisis event and not a, a real one. Um, hey, Jason, I've got, I got a, a question for you. Um, you know, obviously resources are limited throughout law enforcement, and, and Secret Services, uh, you know, is not as big as the FBI, so its resources are even more limited in, in this area. So, a question that often comes up. Uh, is what what is your real threshold for whether you'll take a case or not pursue an investigation? Because um, uh, you can't you can't investigate everything. Uh, and you know, I recently had a, a client who had was the victim of a, a phishing scam, and was told by the FBI that look, since they didn't actually get anything, uh, it, we we're not going to investigate it. And and even if they had gotten anything, if if you don't have at least $100,000 that's either stolen or somehow damages or harm worth that amount, it's just not uh, serious enough for us to investigate. Do you guys have anything comparable to that? Or, uh, you know, what, what should private companies be thinking in, in terms of whether they should even bother going to law enforcement? Um, you bring a very good point. Limited resources, especially with the Secret Service, especially getting ready to go into a campaign year next year. Let's be honest, we're having a presidential election next year, which are really strapped to the resources of the Secret Service. But I would say there's really two different things. There's a response threshold, and then there's a prosecution threshold. In my opinion, we always say there is no case too small, no incident too small that we won't respond to. Case in point, last summer, up in Buffalo, New York, we had a small mom-and-pop liquor store that was identified by a bank as a common point of compromise. The agents responded to that area, uh, looked at the point-of-sales terminal, and figured out that, yes, we had a compromised computer system that was hemorrhaging uh, credit card data back out. Took that back, did the analysis, went back through the U.S. CERT and the NCIC with DHS. Actually found that we identified a brand-new point-of-sales piece of malware called BackOff, 
put that information out to the interagency after it had been um, sanitized, pushed it out to private companies so those people could help protect their networks. That's a very important thing for us in actually a response. Now, he did make a very good point in, in loss thresholds and things of that nature. Those aren't dictated by us. Like, you know, that mostly goes from U.S. Attorney Office to U.S. Attorney Office, depending on what district you come in, what their threshold is. One thing with us in the Secret Service, we like to say, if we can't, if it's a good case and we have a victim and we have some loss that we can go after and we can identify, if I can't get it prosecuted on the federal level, that's why we have our task force. That's why we have our federally deputized state and local uh, officers that are on our task force work through them, work through the state and local courts to actually get it prosecuted on the state level. There's no shame in, in prosecuting a case on the state level when it can't be accepted by the federal system. Are you finding that, that uh, state prosecutors and local prosecutors are uh, equipped to handle these types of cases? I would say more and more so, yes. Uh, one of the ways that we believe that is, in, in, is happening, to toot our Secret Service horn again, is the NCFI, the National Cyber Forensic Institute, down in Hoover, Alabama. This program set up several years ago with the explicit purpose of training state and local prosecutors judges and law enforcement officials the same way we train Secret Service agents in electronic crimes, through forensics, through network intrusion investigations, to putting cases together, to prosecuting those cases, to get all parts of the state and local uh, system ready to work through those cases. As you know uh, from cases that you've worked on, that we've worked on together, um, uh, and that you worked on with, with CSIPs, there's no way to investigate a significant hacking operation without heavily engaging with foreign law enforcement. Um, one of the things that we uh, we talk about all the time on this show is sort of the impact that the Snowden leaks have had on a variety of different aspects of the way the government functions, and one of them is criminal law enforcement. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, uh, if at all, the, the level of cooperation assistance that you found from foreign uh, counterparts has changed in the post-Snowden world. Um, I think I can look at this, like you said, from a purely criminal standpoint. Whenever you look, like Mike can obviously say with the FBI, they have Title 50, they have Title 18 authorities. Secret Service, we only have Title 18 authorities. We only look at things through the criminal eye. And one thing I think is very apparent from uh, when I was in my original area headquarters with Cyber Intel back in 2006, 2007, 2008, we were right in the infancy of really working with a lot of our foreign law enforcement. Coming back to the program within the past year, here and back with cyber intelligence again, I would say that that relationship with foreign law enforcement has completely matured. Uh, it has been very well received on the Title 18 criminal side of the house. So I personally don't really see how Snowden has impacted the criminal side of the house, and I think those relationships with foreign law enforcement continue to, to bloom and, and mature. Now, how about they'll come bring it back closer to, to home? How about the relationship with the internet providers here in the United States? You know, you've got a environment in which Apple and Google are uh, competing with each other to, you know, to get their, the phones encrypted uh, and to have that encryption be unbreakable. Um, you know, privacy has become almost a competitive issue uh, among U.S. providers. Microsoft challenging the kind of search warrant that providers would routinely have granted without incident where the data happens to be stored overseas. And now Microsoft and a host of providers are arguing that the U.S. should have to go through the MLAP process. It seems almost um, in vogue for U.S. providers to be seen as not friendly with law enforcement. Um, do you is that do you experience that in your private dealings with them, or, or is that um, 
something public-facing to sort of send a message to their customers. No, I, say, I think you're seeing it in private as well. I think the companies are becoming more and more and more careful. They want to make sure that U.S. law enforcement is acting under their authorities and under the authorization of the proper court proceedings. No problem with that. That's what the rule of law is there for, and that's what we're going to adhere to. The only thing that sometimes gets frustrating, this is a constantly changing system. So sometimes, you know, what you used to be able to get from a subpoena on one day, you, they may not want a subpoena for that on the next day. They may want a search warrant for that on the next day. That is where the maturation of the legal process comes through, and that's where we lean very hap, uh, heavily on the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's offices to work through those areas with us. So that's a great segue to the last area I wanted to cover with you is – is sort of how the uh, some of these legal doctrines that have been the bread and butter of electronic crimes investigations and prosecutions have evolved uh, in the courts, especially over the last three or four years. Um, you know, Michael mentioned earlier the Riley case involving searches incident to arrest of cell phones, now uh, affecting laptop searches. You know, you, I know you're no stranger to the CDT case in the Ninth Circuit where judges, you know, court tried to impose um, protocols on the way uh, computers and other digital media could be searched. There have been uh, a host of cases in which uh, magistrate judges have pushed back on um, search warrants, not on probable cause grounds, but on scope and particularity grounds, uh, arguing that it's it's uh, uh, you know not consistent with the the, uh, the particularity requirement for a search warrant to be conducted on an entire Gmail account looking for evidence of a specific crime. Um, as an investigator, how uh, and a supervisor of investigations, how are you and how are your people? experiencing that, and how is that affecting your your day-to-day capacity to investigate these crimes? I think it it forces law enforcement, not really forces, it empowers law enforcement to become a a lot more understanding of what the trends are in the court proceedings, how we're going, how important privacy concerns are in this this realm. You know, whenever I started in computer forensics back in early 2000, it was like, you got a search warrant, go search. Now, you learned after a while, okay, you're going into a search warrant, you're looking for credit card material, and suddenly you stumble across child pornography. Obviously, you back out, you contact your AUSA, you say, I need to expand the scope of my warrant, and then you move on from there. The changing of what you can get, what you can look for, when you can, you know, some districts actually limiting, you you have 30 days to image and analyze. Some other districts is, you've got 10 days to image, we don't care how long it takes you to analyze. You have to know where you are district to district on how you act. And I think the biggest thing that comes with law enforcement as we're getting new uh, new software suites, new hardware suites, new capabilities in doing uh, retrieval of stored electronic and live electronic data, you need to know what the rules are in your district. You need to be educated to it and make sure that your court process is in line before you move forward. Yeah, you know, I think we found even in some – uh, you know, different chambers within the same courthouse, the rules differ, and, mm-hmm. and the tolerance magistrates have for some of these searches differ. And it's it's a challenging environment. You you almost can't do anything without uh, your your AUSA has to turn into the chief privacy officer of your case. Well, you I mean, remember times in Southern District like, oh, we're not going to go for the search warrant today because we may get too many questions from the magistrate. Let's go the next day because he understands electronic crime a little bit better, and we don't have to revisit the entire warrant affidavit because he understands electronic crime, whereas the other judge may not even understand what a computer is. Yeah, I don't remember ever forum shopping like that. <laughs> um, I have no memory of that whatsoever. Um, thank you for, for being here and, and for participating in this. We really appreciate it, and I think it's useful and, and really helpful for the listeners, too. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thanks to both of you, Jason, and to Maury Shank. Uh, as a reminder for our listeners, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback, so send any questions 
or suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Or if you'd like to leave a phone message, you can call us at 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 69 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Dan Kaminsky, the Chief Scientist of White Ops. And coming soon, we will have on Catherine Latrianti, Associate Director of the Institute for Law, Science, and Global Security at Georgetown. Also in the future, James Baker, the General Counsel at the FBI, and Rob Nake, Senior Fellow for Cyber Policy at the Council of Foreign Relations. We hope that you will join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.